Hello and welcome to the week of work. I'm your host this week, David Gibney, and I'm joined by my co-host, Michelle Bourne. Um, with us this week, we're joined by Paul Murphy, TD, uh, People Before Profit TD for Dublin Southwest. Um, as usual, we go through the newspapers, and I always forget this at the start, but I'm going to throw it in. Um, the week of work is part of Left Block, uh, political uh, education and alternative media project um, that we've been running for over a year now. Um, if you want to know more about us, or if you want to indeed chip in and support us, you can go to www patreon.com forward slash left block that's left block with no k at the end and without further ado we'll get into the newspapers michelle i might come to you first to see what you've been looking at in terms of either the front pages or whatever big stories you wanted to cover quickly so i've been having a look at the weekend edition of the irish times and there's two main stories on the front of that and the first one is fears covid cases could hit 2000 a day now the paper is a slew with tons of different articles different angles um, around COVID cases and to be honest it's almost like the same kind of mixed communication that we've seen mm-hmm. um, this week in the doll. like the confusion and uncertainty what's happening what, what's not happening but the big story is um, the Minister for Health warns of roaring case growth roaring the word roaring was used um, and earlier than expected surge so they expect the surge just came two weeks earlier and yet at the same time we're talking about indoor dining uh, easing travel restrictions but yet we were expecting the surge. But because um, these are exceptional case numbers amongst young people, um, apparently it's OK. And it's not as if young people haven't been thrown under the bus um, multiple times during like <laughs> through all of this. But yeah, so essentially um, the cases are raising much faster than they thought. And the charts are showing like huge growth amongst 16 to 18 year olds. They literally describe them as being vertical. So at the same time, we're talking about vertical charts between 16 to 18 year olds. We're also having the same conversation um, at the same at the, a conversation at the same time where we're talking about ah well under 18 year olds are grand to go indoor dining if they're unvaccinated with their parents so how can we have those two same conversations happening at the same time and yet no one is tying these two like the, 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 these two conversations together it's so it's so bizarre um there was also um, a quote as well from Stephen Donnelly this week as well where he compared uh, the death toll which is going to maybe reach near 2,000 people to the same as the independent war of independence which like that's very very striking um so we're, we're talking about this kind of language and yet we're still talking about reopening indoor dining and i just can't see how people aren't tying the two together like like i'm, I'm kind of really struck by this fun story and then all of the stories internally where we're talking about you know antigen testing icu capacity we're also talking about the, the eu commissioner is saying that we're doing exemplary and other countries are then starting to vaccinate under 12s um, and then there's a piece about Africa needing uh, vaccines and not bans. Um, so like it, there's just such a contrast to the whole paper. But I think the the front page really sets the tone anyway that the the cases are going up to about two thousand a day um, in the next in the next while, and that's really really scary. Um, and I, I don't know if people are becoming like immune to this kind of news because they're just so tired and burnt out from all of this. Um, but that's terrifying. Um, the other story as well that I was looking at. Um, is Dublin Port earmarked for state housing. That's the other story on the front page. And of course, this is talking about the Land Development Agency, which the bill went in through um, at the moment. But there was something that really struck me in the first paragraph of this article where the, it, it's talking about how the government is preparing to launch its landmark housing for all plan at the end of the month. The housing for all plan. Now, where have I heard that before? Um, housing for all is like literally the tagline that uh, if they're co-opting the language of the left where We've been campaigning for housing for all. Homes for all was literally the title of the protests that were happening. And here they are co-opting that language um, to almost try to rip it from under us, essentially. 
Um, and at the same time, I've heard rumours of protests being planned for September and housing. Um, so look, I, I don't know if this is trying to get out ahead of that or what it is, but essentially the article is talking about how um, Dublin Port has been uh, looked at for, for housing. It, but if you actually look into the article, it's talking about how actually we might have to uh, move some bus air in, uh, depots and bus uh, Dublin bus services and it seems to be this kind of like conflict of like oh well housing or public transport and not actually a much more rounded conversation about how the two of them should be in tandem and actually we should be increasing public transport alongside any of these developments because uh, in order to have a livable um community um so I thought that was very interesting um of course they have repeated the line of you know this the land development agency bill was significantly improved which a lot would um counteract um they, they added in a piece around where 100% of housing development um by the agency in Dublin and Cork will be social and affordable and this whole social and affordable thing really irks me because people are like oh it's grand now like Dublin and Cork are grand you know we're going to get the social and affordable housing but no one actually knows what affordable housing is what that has absolutely no meaning affordable means absolutely nothing for starters it means private housing and secondly uh, nobody has a definition of what affordable is and the last time they tried to um give an indication of what an affordable priced house looked like. They said something like 450,000 uh, for a house. So um, I wouldn't be seeing that as particularly great news. And um, it would be great if they were saying it'd be all public housing and we can we can then have a conversation about that. But again, uh, they tried to put this this little amendment in to try and, to push the whole thing through. Um, while it's, it's a small bit um, improved, it's not it's not um, not a whole lot better. But yeah, it's, it's interesting as well because I think the particular area in Dublin Port where they're talking about has in the past met, been met with strong resistance. So now they're just going to use the land development agency bill to push forward all of this um, with no real kind of like appeals or kind of area for people to like in the community to engage with it if they want to. And um, so, of course, we're seeing firsthand how this is going to be used. Um, and we're probably going to see this as the start the next couple of months where we'll see more of this, where maybe contentious sites where people have gone up against are now just been pushed through to the land development agency bill. So the third two front stories uh, on the Irish Times weekend edition today. Um, but there's lots more inside too, but I'll, I'll leave it to that. Yeah, OK, I'll, I'll quickly just do the Irish Independent and we might get into a chat there with you, Paul, about um, the COVID stuff. Uh, before we get to it, the small story on the front, which is an interesting one. And, you know, in my time looking at the media, I'm always going, the story will always pop up and you'll go, there's more to this than meets the eye. Um, and the media are obviously sometimes restricted in what they can say. But it's children's hospital hit by arson attacks. And it says that a campaign of arson is continuing at the National Ch Children's Hospital construction site where the latest incident happened earlier this week. Now, I thought maybe this was like burning of bits of wood or barrels or something, but it appears it has caused, potentially caused, um, because the, the company BAM are not are refusing to answer any questions, but it seems to have cost, um, or, or caused a number of accidents and people have been severely or seriously injured from it. Um, but it's a focus of investigation by the Gardaí who believe the incidents are deliberate and linked to each other. Um, and they believe someone with legitimate access to the site may be behind the fires, senior sources believe. So I, I'd love to know what they're up to here. This obviously was one fire during the week. There's a full report on page 17, which I went to. And it it, it shows how seriously they're taking it. They've put out a €10,000 reward for information that leads to the, the conviction of whoever is starting these fires on the National Children's Hospital site. So I just thought it was an interesting one that they'd put as a small bit there. The other, the other story on the front page is Young Face. Um, long COVID threat from Delta wave, and it's 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 a little bit similar to yours, Michelle. It's it's brief in terms of the article on the front, but it goes into full reports from pages four to ten, 
And as I was saying before we came on air, the Indo seem to have done a good bit on long COVID this week, but also reporting on the, the, the high figures. I think it was 1,173 yesterday, which is a massive increase from where we were a couple of weeks ago or even a week ago. Um, but yeah, it's it's it then goes on to talk about uh, return to travel in Europe and uh, opening of drinking and dining in, and indoor dining until all uh, some, some some businesses, by the way, are, are stepping up to the plate and saying that they won't open uh, indoor dining until all their staff are vaccinated. And that goes into detail in one of the articles in there. But, Paul, do you want to give us a bit of a perspective around some of that stuff, the, 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 the opening of indoor hospitality? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a grim, depressing story. And I do think Michelle made the point earlier that people are just so frustrated with it like that the government has gotten us into crisis after crisis and it means people have no hope that you can ever be out of it or whatever it just demoralizes people um and like the the incredible cognitive dissonance that's taking place at the moment where like literally for the last three or four days you've got the front page stories the main headline things are getting out of control massive surge and then like cut to second story bars preparing for reopening we can't wait to be back you know and it's like it's 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 back at Christmas of last year, except the case numbers are far higher now, so that's worse. But then on the other hand, at least we have the 60% fully vaccinated. So in that sense, it's like there will be less deaths as a consequence. But um, if they push ahead with what they're doing, and maybe they'll come under so much pressure because of the numbers going out of control the next week that they won't. That's the only hope that we can have. But if they push ahead, there's going to be a lot of deaths. I mean, I, I, people should really follow Andrew Flood on Twitter. He does really good analysis of the Nefis press conferences and stuff. And so, like, already the case numbers are worse on the graph than the worst, most pessimistic projection of Nefit. Do you remember a few weeks ago, Nefit had four scenarios, an optimistic one, two central scenarios, and a pessimistic one. It's already worse than the pessimistic one. And that pessimistic one said that something like 1,800 people would die compared to 500 on the kind of central scenario that we were up to uh, recently. And um, then you add the long COVID on top of that, and there's a lot of evidence coming out. There was a study, I think, in The Lancet a couple of days ago, people, there were 200 different symptoms, very high percentages of young people who get COVID ending up with, with long COVID. Um, and, and then the other thing on top of that, in order to facilitate the indoor reopening at the behest of the hospitality sector, they've introduced this discrimination between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And in doing so, um, obviously, like genuinely pissed off a whole lot of people who don't want to be discriminated against. And that's they're right. You know, it's outrageous what they're doing, but also giving a gift to the far right to organize protests against the discrimination that then become anti-vax protests to kind of undermine the vaccination program, which is essential to getting us um, out of here. So it's it's a disaster. Um, and like it's the same over and over again. It's like being in, in Groundhog Day. And it, it is a real shame that like the other opposition parties who are all zero COVID a few months ago after the disaster of Christmas, they've gone back to form of like basically going along with the government strategy but like with this or that criticism about the specifics of how it's being done, as opposed to saying, no, hold on, protect people's income. Don't force people back to work, protect people's income. Stop cutting the, the PUP in September, as is their plan. Make sure people, small businesses have proper grants, etc. And we just need to wait six, seven, eight weeks and people will be vaccinated. And then hopefully we can reopen safely. And instead, instead, they're, they're likely bringing us back to a lockdown. 
which is like almost unimaginable about how people could deal with that. Like, just could people take another lockdown? The weather's good. People are happy to be eating outside in, for most cases. Obviously, not everyone can. I'm not saying it's without its difficulty, but it'll be a lot worse to be locked up in 20 kilometers or five kilometers in a, in a month's time, if that's where we're at. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that strikes me from some of the stuff you both have said there is about the, the deaths. Um, and because deaths are going to be less and all the rest of it, and this seems to be conditioned now into people, is that deaths are the only criteria we need to to, to measure the, 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 the pandemic against as if... And, and look, to be fair to the Irish Independent, this is why I'm so happy that they've covered so much long COVID stuff, is that having spoken to people with long COVID through my job, like, obviously, I... Um, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, a done stores worker on the south side of Dublin picked up COVID last uh, March, the very start of the pandemic, didn't get long COVID for a full year, like was back at work, everything was fine. And then it kicked in. And um, now she's been to the Beacon Hospital, which they've talked about in the Indo today about the first ever um, long COVID sort of a, a, a clinic, right? And um, what's it, what I found interesting in the article was when you go on page six at the end, there's long COVID can significantly impact particularly younger people. So, you know, this is something that we need to be very concerned about, particularly young workers who work in hospitality could be picking this up at work. Like I said, that Dunn's worker picked that up, picked COVID up at work and now is suffering, can't get out of bed, can't go to work and is getting 150 euros off the dole instead of, or, of the pandemic unemployment payment. No, actually, she's not getting the pandemic unemployment payment because it's not from COVID. Um, I, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but she's getting 150 rather than the full amount. But anyway, going back to it, the HSE still has no specific funding for long COVID services and does not have an estimate of how widespread the condition is. Having said that, right, in the front page of the end, though, the results of the, the survey that they've done, the cardiologist Professor Robert Byrne found that 60 to 80% of COVID patients had at least one lingering sim symptom. That's massive. Like to be a majority of COVID people who've been infected with COVID are, are turning up with long-term symptoms. That's going to overwhelm the healthcare um, system. Absolutely. It, it, whether it's this year, next year, or whenever. And when you go into the, 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 the details of the story, I think it's page four or five. Um, and, and, and this is coming back almost to exactly what you said, Paul. Um, it's the way Ronan Glynn, Dr. Ronan Glynn and, and Neffet and everybody else is talking about this is, is it's as if it's inevitable, right? And um, they're talking about um, how we're seeing a massive increase and we can expect it to, to go even higher in terms of the amount of infections and all the rest of it. Um, and then it goes, it talks about Donnelly, but it says, uh, Donnelly says that they were preparing surge capacity for hospitals, which were likely to come under pressure. So they know it, the hospitals are going to come under pressure. This is the minister, Donnelly. Uh, Minister for Health says we're going to prepare for surge capacity, but that another lockdown is not, or, or delaying the opening of hospitality is not an option. So effectively what they've said in, to translate it into simple man's language is we'd rather you got infected and we deal with it at a later stage than actually take precautions now. Who said prevention is better than cure? Nonsense. We know better. <laughs> so I don't know. It, it's it's very frustrating to watch all this stuff unfold again. It's like we're on a merry-go-round, as I said last week, and it's just you're watching the same things happening. Michelle, you want back in on this? Yeah, like it's, it's almost like it's a herd immunity strategy, but no one's actually using that language in this country. Like we've heard the UK using that, but why aren't we calling that? Because from what, my, what I'm reading here, that's exactly what it is. And this whole concept, and it's great to see that the, the long COVID piece has been covered so well in the Indo this week, but long COVID is not new. Like one of, one of a, a very close friend of mine, 
got long COVID right at the start. And like, I remember her giving me detailed descriptions of her experience of what that was a year ago at the very start, even a year and a half ago, whenever, how long is this going? It was literally, she was one of the first people who got case, uh, got a case of, the, of COVID and developed long COVID from that. And she was under 30, working in hospitality. Um, but it's not new. Was it just that those people who are being affected at that point didn't matter? And now we're seeing a lot more of it or we're, you know, as you say, we're translating the conversation, like, is it death? Is the measurement of the impact here? Or should we be looking at the, the impact as much more than that? And maybe it's just because we're seeing it now and the hospitals can't cope with it. If you're saying that symptoms are being developed even a year onwards, and um, maybe now that, that that realization of that impact is really coming through. Um, but it's not something that we, it's not new, is what I'm saying. This has been here. And it's another thing that the government have failed to prepare for. I do think I think that point about herd strategy, herd immunity, like it is like we're, we're kind of following in the wake of like we're doing like a a half Boris Johnson strategy whereby like everyone's going to get it and like you're just going to get it this way. You're going to get it quick. Like They're now at 50,000 cases a day in Britain and rising extremely or in, in England, I think, and rising extremely rapidly. And like, you know, there's all these people all over the Internet. They're like. Twitter, right-wing Twitter epidemiologists who are saying that the vaccinations break the link between case numbers and hospitalizations and ICU and death. And like, it it doesn't. It it weakens the link. It means that there is a, a smaller percentage end up in hospitalization and ICU and death. But like, if you look at it now in, in Britain, in England, Scotland, Wales, and the North, everywhere, the the hospitalization rate is now going up and as night follows day, the ICU rate and the death rate is going to go up. And there's a there's another point that was made, there's a Financial Times article today with there's experts condemning the UK saying that the lifting the curbs and the way they're doing it in Britain poses a threat to the world because basically it's like a Petri dish for like new variants. If you have like a semi-vaccinated population that the virus is running absolutely rampant through, you're like, you're really creating very good environments to have new variants. And like, you know, like it's, it is theoretically possible um, and not just like a small percentage. It's, it's, it's possible that we can have a new variant that is like even more resistant to vaccines than Delta. And that can just set us back massively, you know, and then the Irish government is just following in their wake. And then the other thing is that like, we're fully opening up the travel to, to Britain, despite Delta being completely out of control. And again, it's another one of these things whereby you know, at the time we said seven weeks ago, we were like, look, Delta is a real problem. It's not here yet fully, but we need to st- slow it down getting here. We need mandatory hotel quarantine as opposed to just it being kind of racist theater that's completely ineffective, which is mostly how it is in this country. We need to actually deal with the main country, which is Delta, which is the main country, country traveling uh, to Ireland. We need mandatory hotel quarantine for England, Scotland and Wales. And obviously people are like, oh, it'll never work as the north. So, yeah, you couldn't stop it entirely, but you could have slowed it massively. And that's all we needed. We just needed it an extra bit of time. And maybe we could have had a safe reopening. But at the time, it was dismissed as madness. You couldn't possibly do that. And now look at where we are. And then, of course, obviously, I'm up in uh, Derry every now and then um, uh, for my sins. But like Derry was the hotbed in Ireland of the Delta variant for, for you know, it, it seems to have sort of spiked there but a lot of that seems to be because we don't have a cohesive all-island strategy or approach to this where they have the bars open up there indoors now i don't know if you even mentioned it last week you can go into a bar in Derry or belfast right a closed bar you still if you're the partner of a woman giving birth up there you still can't go into the maternity ward you can only go in for the last hour of priorities dave 
it's crazy. You can have 100 people in a bar, but you can't have your partner beside you when you're giving birth. It, 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 none of it makes sense. Just on the on the um, the long COVID, because, you know, I'd say most people know somebody that has had it or has it at the moment. And, and, and the article on page six of, of, of the Indo does talk about it. It says 89% of people um, have fatigue, 72% have breathlessness, 62% have sleep disturbance, 51% have chest pain, and 55% have anxiety and depression type symptoms. Now, we have a, a mental health system in Ireland um, that's already struggling. And this is, you know, this, this strategy, and, and I know I'm making a, a broad link here, but the strategy that they're having, whether it's herd immunity or what, whatever we call it, it's going to put pressure on the mental health services going forward. And we're going to see implications of that, particularly from the fact that young people are the ones that are going to get it because they're not vaccinated. And young people predominantly work in the hospitality services industry where we're sending them into work to pick it up. So it's it's a little bit frustrating to watch all this stuff. You know, it's always the left, I think, has this um, constant problem of saying, you know, six months, a year, two years, five years later, saying we told you so. It's just a pity that we're not in government yeah. to prevent the I told you so moment. Um, Michelle, I think you want in again, do you? Yeah, like there's there's also, just when you're talking about the mandatory um, quarantine, there's also a piece in the Times as well about how 34 countries have now been removed from the mandatory uh, quarantine list this week. But only one has been added back on, and that's Cuba. Um, so they're going to be added to the list of designated states for mandatory hotel quarantine. Meanwhile, we've literally taken off like another 30 countries um as you know we're talking about kind of more increased um flights but of course i suppose cuba is probably more in the, the news the last week or so um for a lot of other different reasons um are in the protests there but strangely enough there's nothing in the times on it this week was there anything that you were reading about that uh nothing in the end though uh that i can see on 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 cuba whatsoever um now i presume because this isn't these aren't the weekend the new sunday papers the once a week that they've probably covered it already this week i haven't actually read any of the articles um but as people will listeners will probably know and myself and paul will probably fall out over this for the crack anyway but like the, there's there's been protests do, double protests i suppose in cuba over the the last uh, week or so um much of it on the back of um the response to the pandemic um because cuba's numbers have gone very fairly high but also on economic um problems and food shortages and a whole range of issues that have been going on over there all of which um have come on the back of a blockade over 50 years of a blockade stopping um essential products and essential services from from entering so um it's almost like a perfect storm for the cuban people because their whole economy, not whole economy, but a large, massive amount of their economy is based on tourism. Now they switched from sugar beet many years ago, and they have oil, but oil is 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 basically outsourced to the Canadian government, and Canadians benefit from their the oil system over there. But what we're seeing is protests, which are being supported and have been supported for decades by the United States and the imperialist nature of of the United States, and in an attempt, another attempt. <laughs> I mean, this happens every couple of years over there. I remember reading, uh, there's a brilliant book for people if they haven't read it by a guy called Keith Bollander on, on Cuba under siege. And it goes through the whole history um, of Cuba itself, but then it gets into the the, the blockade and, and what's happened and, and the siege that's happened um, in Cuba where the American government used to fly planes and drop uh, transistor radios with parachutes in boxes so that they could broadcast the Cuban people to try and get them to overturn. This is this isn't going even back that long. And then they they tried dropping flyers. They've they've 
you know, they, they've tried everything they can. And, and this is how now, right now, they're using social media as a as a form for trying to overthrow the, the Cuban government. But it's um, it's it's been an interesting watch the last week because obviously there was the protests against the Cuban government at the start. And then there were protests in favor of the, the Cuban government on, on, on the back of the president calling them out. But I don't know, Paul, maybe you want to uh, jump yeah, in. Well, I, I won't fall out with you over um, any of that. And I, I think I agree with everything that you, you said. Like, you know, in the ter- there's no question that uh, the main reason for the problems facing the Cuban people is the U.S. blockade. And I mean, you know, I, I, if, if we knew all of the secrets of the CIA, I presume there are literally hundreds of attempts to overthrow the revolutionary government. Um, and basically, I mean, you see a lot of the stuff on, on Twitter with the hashtag SOS Cuba, people saying we've had six decades of brutality and then not looking back at, oh, what was before that? It was a Batista dictatorship where basically Cuba was this playground for the mafia and the rich of America, where one in four people were illiterate, where it was massive, massive uh, poverty. And there's no question that the Cuban revolution like transformed people's lives um, for the better. And since that point, continuing today, Democrat or Republican, you know, a key aim of US foreign policy is to extinguish that alternative. You know, it goes against the basic idea there can be an alternative, it's a particular reference point for people in Latin America, and they want to extinguish it. And they're happy to fucking cause, you know, real problems for people. I mean, the last thing that the Trump administration did was to to stop people being a- able to send money home. Mm-hmm. So people, Cuban people who were in America want to sp- send money back to their families. And um, ironically, you know, an amount of those Cuban people in America would actually be kind of supporters of counter-revolution. I'm not saying all of them, but certainly there's a, a big percentage in, in Miami, but n- not allowing them to send money back home. And it's funny that the alleged reason for it is, oh, because the government will take the money off them. When there's no truth that that is the case whatsoever, right? So no no, no question about it, right? And the, the main thing that the left around the world has to say is end the blockade, use are the ones responsible for this crisis. The only kind of nuance that I would add to that is that, I would say, obviously, it's very difficult to know, and it's very difficult to get like accurate information on the ground that isn't distorted by propaganda, overwhelmingly Western U.S. imperialist propaganda. Um, but is that there do seem to be real problems? Um, again, that's the main reason for the real problems is the blockade in terms of access to vaccines, in terms of empty shelves, in terms of economy. And I would say, and this is from from a distance, that like there's plenty of ordinary people involved in the protest pissed off at the problems that they're facing and then there's no question that then i'm sure the cia is all over it and their agents in cuba are all over it to try and say let's take this and use it let's turn it into a protest about quote unquote freedom i.e let's turn it into a protest to bring back capitalism uh, to cuba which would be a disaster Um, and i think you know it's a question of how best do you defend the gains of the cuban revolution and i think like the method of repression um, so there definitely were like people who are critical Marxists were arrested at the protest, which indicates that they were on the protest. And you can debate, was it right or wrong to be on the protest? But people, unless they're like, you know, very clearly just agents of the CIA, counter-revolutionaries or whatever, I think people do have the right to protest, shouldn't be uh, repressed. And then the other point that you can make, you have to make it in the context of the blockade. No question about it. That's the overall context is like, it is the case that the, 
kind of direction of Cuban economic policy over the past decade has been towards more and more market reforms, more and more reliance on on the tourism, on a kind of parallel currency situation, more and more marketization, liberalization. And I do think like that's not the way to defend the gains of the Cuban revolution. Again, that's from a distance, you know, but like I think the best way to defend the gains is to have like a fully democratic social society reverse the kind of liberalization but obviously also you need to spread the revolution because that's that's the problem facing cuba is like you're so isolated you're facing the blockade and everything else yeah and you've uh, you've you've lost an awful lot of your allies over the last 30 odd years uh, exactly. that were given not just economic support in, in, like people see it as like donations or whatever but like even um so soviet um, union would trade sugar i mean that's why they had to give up the sugar industry was that they lost this, that, that trading partner um but like you know we have to look at the I, do you know what i did this morning just to google the stats on on cuba just on the infant mortality rates because that's a big one um in latin america and, and the caribbean um i was looking at it and i i to be honest because i i've been in cuba twice and i was in 2006 2013 14-ish um, and I could see the development and the opening up of the economy happening from the two visits, you know, but between that period of time, you could see restaurants and, and how things were changing um, in the same locations and all the rest of it. And fascinating to watch. Right. But, you know, I never really and people would say this is oppression or, or people were silenced. People were critical of the government to me openly. And um, yeah, and, I've heard that. Yeah. And they, they didn't seem to want to hide it or there was no fear in it whatsoever. Mm. And. The things that they looked for actually were, you know, when, when I got home and I, because I, I worked as a postman, I probably, if I was, I'll never get a job and I'm post when I say this again, but we used to get um, free postage on certain things in, in bags. So I used to send home Premier League um, jerseys because <laughs> they couldn't afford it. It was a month's salary type of thing with the dual currency. Um, but but I, I, I put them in what are called redirection bags and send them over. And all the lads would give me their old Premier League jerseys or whatever. And we'd, we'd, we'd be sending over literally hundreds of them to, to addresses that I picked up while I was over there. There'll be a picture of some protest, like, and loads of lads were like, yeah. You're like, that's my jersey. <laughs> Even better, they got Dublin ones in the Palestinians <laughs> GAA jersey wandering around Havana. But, um, but no, it, just looking at the infant mortality rates there around comparable countries, you know, you could interestingly despite all of the the problems that cuba has it still has among all of the 19 countries in the, in the region the lowest infant mortality rate and when you look at the comparable ones of the dominican republic they dominican republic has six times the infant mortality rate of cuba or haiti has 12 times the infant mortality rate to, to, to cuba right and and you're going like uh, and i'm not accusing anybody or, saying, or having to go at anyone but like these protests you mentioned, by the way, literacy rates. Uh, Cuba went from the worst literacy rates in those 19 comparable countries down to the to, to, to the best. That it, and that was done in the space of 10 years. Like, it's such a role that it. But again, people protested, CIA, overthrow, humanitarian aid from the United States, all this bullshit. What they want to do is, not directly, but if they were successful, you're going to have Haiti rates of infant mortality again in Cuba if it's if, if it's overthrown. But um, Cuba is a beautiful country. Urge everybody that has the capacity to go over there and visit it. It really they need the money as well, obviously. But wait until the pandemic is over. I don't know, Michelle. Did you have any input on on Cuba? Yeah, like you know, you have to just going back to what Paul was saying around the liberalization of their policies in America policy. Like you have to wonder like how much that actually connected to because of the sanctions and like you know if we just went straight for the sanctions and like tackling that like the fact that the un have said have voted for years to end that that blockade 
and nothing has been done. Like they have absolutely no power to do anything. It's just continuing. It's 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 known that this is uh, absolutely disgraceful what's happening. Um, but yeah, it, it seems like everyone their everyone's hands behind their back, and obviously this is what's happening now. Um, and there seems to be a lot of like divisiveness as well and opinion on on it too. And I think we we've, we've articulated it well here anyway. Um, but yeah, no, that that's kind of my thoughts on it. I just think like it's absolutely pointless to have a UN vote every single year saying end the blockade when literally nothing has been done about it. Like I feel like they should actually just do something at this stage. Yeah, um, one thing that's not in the papers, moving on, uh, unless Paul wanted to come back in on it, but, but, but one of the things that's not in um, the Irish Independent, but it might be in the Irish Times, is is job bridge number two. Um, and I'm going to let you, Paul, talk about this because you've been doing great work on it. And it, it's funny that, you know, myself and that's yourself true. crossed paths probably seven or eight years ago that's, for the first true, time yeah. the first job bridge book. <laughs> yeah, so the, there is a story actually on independent.ie online, but it must not be in the paper about... Um, I mean, I thought it was gas. Like they, the government spent the week saying, "No, no, this this isn't job bridge. No, this isn't job bridge two point zero. And then on Friday, it all these jobs online, and literally one of them was for a Delhi assistant, which was a kind of classic old job bridge. And so the story in the Indo online is about the fact that that came down after we exposed this. And I think it was like a, you know, I think probably the company said, "Oh crap, getting a blowback here, and we'll pull back from it." Um, but yeah, so they announced the scheme on Monday. Um, yesterday we did a, or Thursday I did a topical issue in the doll, and it was funny with the the minister, right? And and what she said was, she said the work placement experience program is an entirely new scheme and is much different than the schemes that went before it. It's like they're really eager to say, oh, this isn't Jobbridge, so it's called the work placement experience program, um, which I think thankfully is such a long clunky name that it will be known as Jobbridge 2.0 by everyone. So thanks a lot, government. Good job. Um, and it's essentially Jobbridge um, with, I'll, I'll tell you what the differences are, right? So they can't accuse us not of being honest. In, instead of 40 hours a week, it's 30 hours a week. Instead of for nine months, it's for six months. Um, instead of an extra 50 quid a week, it's an extra 103 euros a week. So it's just under 350 an hour that they're going to uh, pay you. And they say, oh no, this time there's there has to be certified training involved. But then when you look at the, the small print, they, you have to have training, you have certified training for 20 hours out of your six months. So out of 720 hours, you have to do training for 20 hours. Um, and that's it. All the other recommendations that the government, that the Indicon made to the government, for example, a core one was saying that employers have to pay, they should have to pay something. They, they made 10 core recommendations. The government changed three of those things and ignored the seven, which means that just like the last job bridge scheme, this is a scheme to massage the unemployment figures uh, down. It'll, it Rather than creating jobs, it will act to displace jobs because Mr man who owns a shop and wants a deli assistant will say, well, I'll get a deli assistant for free rather than employing someone. Similarly, I want a car washer, also online. Similarly, I want someone to do photocopying, also online. They'll do those things. And um, it can act to kind of depress wages for everybody. Because if, if if you're looking to get a wage increase and your boss can say, well, I could, I could pay you a bit more and maybe do some extra work or I get someone to do your work for free, well, then you know what's going to happen. So I do think like what me and Dave would have been involved in the all the campaigning around Jobbridge, Scambridge last time, is that like there's a real role here for the trade union movement, the youth sections of the trade unions in particular, which is what Dave was was involved in, then um to, to to kind of take a stand against this and say this is an issue for everybody. And instead we need proper education and we need investment in actual job creation, like green jobs. Absolutely. I, um, I, Michelle. 
yeah, I was just going to say I'm amazing that you, you mentioned like the youth part of the trade unions as well. Like I'm, I'm involved in Unite Youth um, and we're, we, you know, we're trying to be as active as possible and engage. But it, there, a lot of the youth sections of the trade union movement aren't active. Um, like the ICTU Youth Committee isn't even meeting, um, uh, despite people calling for it, which is interesting. So like I think we like the whole movement needs to show that commitment because there is people that are trying to engage and maybe the structures don't allow for it. But like I remember that really stark photo of like young people lined up outside the doll, like with the door at, at last job bridge about people emigrating. Like, and we're already seeing other um, headlines where we're talking about, oh, we can't fill these low paid jobs. Um, you know, people are going to emigrate. They have been emigrating. Half my friends are in Glasgow now at this stage, um, which seems to be the new Australia. They, uh, I don't know what's going on there. Um, but like, how are we, are, are they just using this scheme now just to fill this low paid job shortage rather than actually addressing the problem of low pay? Um, so why not just bring in this this other scheme? And interesting enough, actually, there was there's another piece in the Times as well that talks about a trainee solicitor who was getting paid less than five euro an hour, and he took a case and won. Um, so I think uh, maybe we might see a lot of cases being taken here. Um, and hopefully that will be, um, as you say, an opportunity for the trade union movement to kind of like mobilize if if this is properly coming in. Um, but it'll just be interesting to see how this pans out. I I don't see how this ben- can benefit anyone. Um, it, it's yeah, as you say, jobs, job bridge, uh, part two, and yeah, it, we we all know how that worked out. Yeah, I, I mean, on this, I think one of the key components for the government here on a policy level is wage um, wage stagnation. It's not rather than anything else. Um, I, I just when you look at how. One of the tactics that they had during austerity years was keeping wages low, um, and this does keep wages low. From the job bridge scheme, you'll remember this, Paul. But they hired, I think, twenty-eight people from advanced pit stop tires. Tire people. Yeah, I think it was thirty-eight actually. Yeah, 38, thirty-eight in total. I think at one stage they applied for twenty-eight um, job bridge positions at the one time, and then advertised for more a few weeks later. Now a whole range of retail outlets have done the same or did the same at the time, and were resisted. In fairness to Mandate Trade Union, when um, Tesco came in looking for for job bridge, and it was resisted. But what what that does then is fast fit tires across the road what are they going to do they have to compete so they have to go and get either job bridge or cut wages and and looking at the data over the last 10 years it worked under job bridge it it, it wage wages stagnated for a long period of time we call it a, a lost decade right and i think that the logic behind this is the covid pandemic has given them another opportunity for this because we know that inflation is class war right um, and what we need is a little bit of inflation to erode at the financial assets that are, you know that are out there, um, and obviously put money in, in, into 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 workers' back pockets. Um, it eats away at house price inflation and all the rest of it as well. But what we're what we're seeing now over the last five years, in particular, is a bit of growth in wages, and, and wage inflation has happened. So this is, I think, deeper. I think there's actually a strategy around this stuff of keeping wages low, and of course, it's going to have an impact on on people's terms and conditions. Some of the because you you tweeted a link to 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 where the jobs are advertised, and I found some of them really fascinating. Stood and racing yard assistants. You can. You can shovel horseshit yeah. <laughs> for three fifty an hour. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's it. You can like seriously, stood and racing yard assistant, and you're doing job bridge stuff around it. Like this is just money into the pockets of big wealthy horse racing, maybe billionaires. I don't know. I need to look at into who who runs the business, but 
wouldn't horse racing would industry wouldn't strike me as an industry that was suffering too much over the past number of years but yeah it's um it's something that the the trade union movement workers themselves everybody should be concerned about because this is going to lead to more wage stagnation and the undermining of existing terms and conditions of employment michelle you mentioned about a job um or somebody taking somebody to court was that right did you want to elaborate a little bit yeah yeah essentially there was a trainee solicitor who's after taking um who took their employer uh, to the labor court um, and yeah so essentially they were getting what was working out at about five euro an hour they were doing like 50 to 60 hours per week work uh, the employer was saying that they were only employed for for 22 hours a week and all of this and they even went on to claim like that they're not an employee so therefore like uh, maybe the employment law doesn't really apply to them and I wonder if those kind of things be kind of coming out uh, you know off the back of this job bridge um, 2.0 but yeah, well, he won the case successfully and he's awarded 22 grand, just over 22 grand. And um, But it is an interesting precedent of like how does like trainee solicitor, how does like these trainee jobs, like how do they work and, you know, how are p- people remunerated for them? And like also, do they have the same rights as well when it comes to challenging them? So I think it's a really big win. It's great to see it. Um, I think obviously, like obviously it's a solicitor this time and it's probably someone who's uh, doing job bridge uh, for, the, for the next, or job bridge and a deli assistant uh, for this next one. But also interesting in the in the times as well is a piece around apprenticeship short, shortages as well. And um, so this story isn't new. Like it's been ha- we're talking about this for years, and um, particularly around like obviously construction and stuff like that. That there is um, apprenticeship shortages, um, and that how it hinders house building is actually what the the line is. And the piece actually talks about like how there's issues with like um, hiring and retention and block releases and all of that. But actually, um, it doesn't talk about the barrier of costs as well. Like I know, for example. Um, I think it's a thousand euro a year to do those apprenticeships. And that was introduced over the last couple of years. And so at one hand, we're like, right, there's an actual training program where we can actually train people in a legitimate way. And that's not really working because people aren't really engaging with it. So we're just going to force people into these other kind of like jobs with our low paid that people can't live or survive off, but make them do for less, you know, for experience, because then apparently all of these other jobs are going to come off the back of it where we all make a living wage. Um, and we're all able to live possibly but like look it's, it's 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 quite delusional but anyway that's where we're at it's just it's a really interesting contrast the stories that are coming through um but yeah nothing about jo- jobs bridge specifically in here um but yeah just that, that is like that's an interesting point because there is i remember we did a lot of research with dave and ronan burtonshaw and shane fitzgerald and other people back in the day of first job bridge about kind of the role of internships and there's kind of two sides of them one is this kind of thing you're a deli assistant you're car wash assistant you're shoveling horse shit for the horse owner um you know whereby like there's people getting you to do jobs that they absolutely should be paying you for um do you know what i mean they're just looking for free labor in a very kind of gruesome base way they're real greedy hungry feckers like you know but the, the other side of it is the, the role that internships play in kind of gatekeeping certain professions so in the media in law um, in other things that like you have to be able to work for free for like a long time to get a leg up, which means that you need to be able to rely on your parents. You need to be coming from like a middle class or upper middle class background to be able to go. And for example, like take the example of barristers, like, you know, as a barrister, you do a long law degree, then you, you have to qualify as a barrister. Then you have to what's called devil, where you literally work for free for a year or two for, for another barrister. And like at what ordinary person can can do that, you know? And like, then you wonder why all the judges and all the barristers are from 
one class background that is not reflective of the rest of society at all. The same is also true in terms of the, the media. Um, and obviously there's, there's bigger issues about the ownership of media and so on. But there is a point about like the common world outlook that is held by people in the media and in law and in politics, you know, reflecting those who are at the very top of society and having not having the life experience that most people actually have. Yeah, I mean, there are barriers to entry. And this this goes back to the history of trade unionism itself. Like, I mean, when it came to apprenticeships, it was, you know, blacksmiths would make sure that it was only their families that knew understood. Not all yeah, yeah. But, but, but then, it, you know, most of the elite sort of families and all have created these barriers. To, there's no logic to that, to, to, to having that barrier to entry within barristers, a, a year of completely unpaid. It's just to make sure that their class can continue to get into those positions and then, um, our class depends on uh, those people to get us out of trouble when <laughs> when we get arrested for protesting or whatever. Um, so uh, just on that trainee solicitor one, I just wanted to touch on this quickly, Michelle, because what's interesting about that whole thing is, you know, he was it it, it says that trainee in the it's covered in the Irish Independent as well. Trainee solicitor paid five euro per hour is awarded twenty two grand. Now the language is important on this. He's not awarded it. <laughs> He's given us arrears. This is money he earned. There's no penalty on wage theft in Ireland. There's none. An employer can steal from a worker and take the money, put it in his back pocket. If he gets caught, he's told to give it back to the worker. And that's what's happened here. He stole from that worker 22 grand and the worker has been given the the, the 22 grand that he earned back. The last WRC report, Workplace Relations Commission report that I looked at, there was almost 3 million euros of unpaid wages returned in 12 months. And the one before that was about two million. And the one before that was about a million and a half. There's huge. And by the way, these are inspection levels of within retail sector, 0.12% of retailers are inspected. So you can imagine how much wage theft there actually is out there. Because we only get the, when we say the tip of the iceberg, we're getting the tip of the tip of the iceberg when we see some of this stuff. There's literally millions and millions of, 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 of payments that are being denied to workers that we don't know about. Um, but through the inspections from the WRC, we know that it's about €3 million Euros a year in unpaid wages is being returned. What we don't have is enough WRC inspectors going around and the state won't employ more for for whatever reason they have and hence my calls from for the last 10 years or so for right to entry right to access for trade union officials to go in and do those inspections because it's not only that the money was stolen from this trainee solicitor you think about how much money revenue lost out of that on the back of it and and, and like we only know about this one because the guy was caught and and look fair play to the solicitor uh, the trainee solicitor who took the case because it does take balls because then you're sort of making yourself unemployable in other um solicitor firms but i just wanted to make that point about wage theft because it's not being taken seriously in ireland it never has been and really actually the trade union movement should be stepping up to the plate and and, and making much more noise about wage theft uh, particularly in, because the worst impacted industries tend to be hospitality and retail uh, which are already low paid um, sectors. So um, I don't know, Paul, have you got any other stories you wanted to touch on before we, um, well, I have a couple of stories, but I'll come back to them in a couple of minutes. Well, just to, just to mention yeah. one, or just Sorry. to mention one, um, you go ahead, Paul. I know Michelle's in Kerry at the moment. I don't know if that's a, a trade secret, you're not allowed to say it. And so she she has the front page of the, the Kerry's Eye um, and it's the front page in fairness to them is about a story I raised um, during the week and um, that day, uh, journalist Aidan O'Connor has been doing work on for a long time um, and it's about a former judge, a judge who's now retired, who was based in Kerry and it's quite a horrific story of gross abuse of, of power, um, involves a woman who has very bravely 
spoken out to Aidan O'Connor and Mick Clifford has done a couple of articles and the village have done an article which is entitled A Menace in the District Court where they name the uh, judge. So that's worth um, checking out. Um, but basically what, what happened was that this woman was before the court looking for a protection order against her former uh, partner. Um, the two of them are before the district court. The judge strangely asks for both their numbers at the end of the application for a protection order. And the woman's like, oh, this is strange. But the lawyer says, yeah, I've never seen this before kind of thing. But like, OK, if he's asking for it, sure, he's the judge. So that's fine. Then she begins to get calls and texts from the judge. She's wondering, what's the situation here? Is this something kind of legal or whatever? Then he starts telling her how beautiful she is. He, he tells her not to tell other people that um, he's in contact with her in this way. He uses a different phone number, if I remember uh, correctly. Um, and then he, 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 he looks to meet up with her. Um, so she feels under pressure, uh, meets up with him, and it's clear when they meet that he's only interested in, you know, he wants to have a sexual relationship um, with her. Um, he's in a position of massive power. He's still deciding over her, her case. Then she gets, she gets away from him. She doesn't meet him again. Um, like he, she has to come before him again where she's looking for an extension of the protection order. She's looking for six months. He only gives her uh, three months. Um, so it's, it's really horrific. He has so much power in that situation. And she is, she's an immigrant in this country looking for a protection order against a former partner and then is pursued in this horrific way by this judge. Um, and then in fairness to her, like really, like she went, instead of just accepting it, she went everywhere to look for justice. She wrote to the senior guards. She went to, she, to senior judges. She went to the guardie, did nothing. She went to GSOC, got no joy. She went, she got no justice whatsoever. And, and like, it points to a real problem is that at the moment, if you're the victim of like, you know, very significant misconduct by a judge, you basically don't have any recourse. Cause it isn't like an appeal. It wasn't like she was disputing the legal judgment that he made. She was disputing his personal behavior uh, towards him. Um, but basically, and, and so I raised it with Mihal Martin this week and he was like, oh, haven't heard anything about it. That sounds terrible. But like she has sent him all the stories before. She has uh, emails from him saying that, oh, she got it, et cetera. So we'll, we'll see if anything moves on it over the summer. If, if not, I certainly intend to raise it again when the, the doll comes uh, back. Yeah, and fair play to, your, to you, Paul, for your work on this, because I think you bringing it up in the doll now has really kind of catapulted this into a way where we weren't expecting to see it. And I definitely wasn't. I obviously came down to Kerry to get the front page of the Kerry Eye, knowing that you're coming onto the podcast and your, your face is splashed across the front page. Um, so fair play to you for your work on this. I think it's it's a really highlights a stark contrast of like um, how this like huge abuse of power is being left um without any real recourse as you say and it's, it's it's quite frankly it's really scary to see to hear that happening um and I, I really hope now we can see something come out of this but I I know we're conscious of time so I, I might run a couple of other stories as well um but I can't read a story about Irish water and not bring it up um especially with the two guests guests I have here but there's a a piece here that says a concern over huge demand on water supply and of course everyone is to blame as staycationers the easing of uh, hospitality restrictions and the warm weather but not once do they mention the data centers in the piece, because, of course, that would have absolutely nothing to do with it. But a couple of pages further into the paper, then we have a piece around a plan for a 1.2 billion data center um, to be lodged in County Clare. But sure, look, I, I assume no one no one's really drawing the connections except for us apparently in this podcast around how the connections to water shortages that are obviously, you know, like why we, we wouldn't be able to cope with general hospitality being open and as we say not all of it is open but yeah we're not even able to cope with that we're not able to cope with staycationing despite you know there being a lull in um hospital like in, in uh tourism 
But uh, what happens when everything goes full full steam ahead and the country's completely open and hospitality is completely open? Who are they going to blame then? Are they just going to say, well, maybe you should all just stop doing things? Um, and, you know, <laughs> so, you know, with all these water shortages, I'm sure it's the heat wave this time that they can blame, I suppose. But like, it's just, yeah, that this lack of drawing um, the stories together with the dash centers not even mentioned in that piece around water shortages is really disappointing. Um, I also wanted to kind of touch on as well, um, some people might be familiar with the um, CETA tra- the trade deal. So that's the EU-Canada trade deal um, that uh, we've been talking about um, a few times on this podcast. But essentially, um, TD Patrick Costello um, brought a case to court this week, um, questioning the constitutionality of um, the deal and whether um, the courts inside it, that's the investor courts, that um, the chapter inside it that lists that, whether that um, we would have to have a referendum on that or not, or whether it's a decision that the doll can make that, that that can go through. So it's interesting. There hasn't been a decision made on it yet. And um, they hope to kind of bring one back soon. Um, but I think it'll be really interesting to see whether the, the courts that are within that CETA deal um, are going to be allowed to be voted on in the doll constitutionally or whether it's going to have to call for a referendum um, over the basis that, you know, if it's a transfer of sovereignty um, that they're proposing with absolutely Real no appeal or uh, tribunal, no judges uh, appointed under the constitution. Um, really worrying, um, you know, peace for us when we talk about our democracy. Um, that you know, there's no limit even there on how much they can sue the state as well. If if they if they pol- if they don't like the policies, these big uh, Canadian companies that are coming in to make as much profit as they want, they can sue if they think, for example, like our climate policy was impacting on their profits. And it's a really scary place to be. But I think it's a great case that Patrick Crosslow is bringing. Um, Lynn Boyland is also bringing a case as well, where she's suing um, a couple of the government departments. And there's no detail on that in the papers um, as, um, this weekend. Um, but hopefully we'll hear more about that too. Um, and also, I can't go on without uh, mentioning, um, I wasn't actually familiar with this case, but um, there's a talk about um, a woman who has been brought for t- to court. She's going to be brought, sorry, I'm just trying to find the article now. Um, but it's a court, it's a case in Cork. Um, and basically, um, this activist has been arrested on charges of inciting hatred over a group. Now, when you actually read the article, um, essentially Garda are going to arrest a Cork activist next week for inciting hatred against a Christian fundamentalist group operating in the country. So essentially, um, this activist has been publishing the activities and kind of what this group has been um, saying. So essentially, they're a neo-Nazi, anti-Semitic group uh, linked to uh, an ex-Catholic bishop um, who uh, really goes for it against uh, Jewish people quite a bit, linking them to a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of really anti-Semitic stuff. But yet they are bringing a case against her um, for inciting hatred against them. Um, so I find it's very bizarre. Um, the guards seem to be going in very hard on her, saying that if she doesn't come in for an interview, they're going to arrest her um, for inciting hate against this neo-Nazi group, which is like the I- irony is bizarre. Um, but they, apparently the guards are being very, very aggressive um, in their approach towards Fiona, who's named in it, um, in, in relation to this. But yeah, very interesting um, as well, because also the same group have been reported by the Jewish Representative Council of Ireland um, for their remarks that they've been making against Jewish people. And um, yes, we, we, we haven't heard anything that's been happened to them on that. So kind of a kind of a scary place, um, like solidarity as well to Fiona, who's who's going up against this. But I just think I want to highlight that as well so people are aware of the case. Wow, I actually hadn't heard a thing about that. That's that's fascinating stuff. Just on the CETA thing, quickly before I move on, I have a story here that you might want to come. I have two stories left, um, but the CETA thing, if you think about the cuckoo funds and the vulture funds and all that sort of stuff, you know, CETA in particular, Iris Reit is based in Canada. It's a Canadian firm, but it's also Ireland's largest landlord. 
Um, how would we ever bring in future uh, restrictions around them buying up full housing estates in Maynooth, for instance, um, or having any sort of and restrictions around evictions or any of that sort of stuff? Because they'd be able to sue us uh, for indefinite years um, on loss of profits, which is what tends to happen, as we saw with the tobacco firms over in Australia and, and, and elsewhere. Um, just on, uh, there's a story on page 10 here of the Irish Independent again, and it's bar workers are not specialised staff, insurer argues in case over COVID cover. Now, this is specifically, uh, again, back to FBD insurance, who seem to hate everybody. And and I mean, the stuff they do, this just never seems to end. But they their, their barrister, say, uh, Declan McGrath, uh, for F- FBD made a number of points in the court and, and and the basis of this campaign or this this um this case is that bar workers are seen as essential by a number of their employers that, by, by 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 um the, the 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 bars that they work in the owners are saying that these bar workers are so specialized and so important to the business going forward that they should be factored in for the losses that they've made during the pandemic because they've been forced to close and all the rest of it and the barrister and, and fbd insurance are saying no they're not specialized anyone can learn how to pour a point it, it doesn't take that long anymore and they actually get into into great detail about it the proposition that cleaners kitchen porters and bar staff are specialized members of staff that you have to retain that's just unsustainable as a proposition uh, we're talking about the bar trade and we're talking about people who don't have in large measure particular qualifications or education requirements or things of that nature they're not specialized staff and you can actually hear him saying this in the courts about how you know undermining of these the, these workers i'd love to see someone like this barrister to go in and, and work for a year in in the bar trade and see that there is a specialized skill to it and um, there's no such thing as unskilled work everybody has certain skills and the, and that includes these guys but it seems and you mentioned you mentioned the cleaners as well like we're still in a pandemic like have the cleaners um who have put in their their, their towels on the front line like like not ever and it's that's i'm not gonna say it's not a distant memory it's still happening like they've literally been on the front line and we've been out commending them how could he possibly say unskilled workers when it's these workers who've been getting pe- people through the pandemic the, like even at the height of the restrictions it, it's amazing how quickly the um oh these workers are so important frontline workers yeah 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 how quickly that is forgotten and we revert to type because like the one thing that was like you know quite broadly accepted in society was like oh yes now we know who is important the people yeah. who are actually doing the work the grocery uh, workers the delivery drivers the frontline health workers the hospitality workers it's not the billionaires who are getting rich off covid they're not essential but uh yeah they're trying to like re-establish that narrative and i also even think the jobbers thing is kind of a part of that and um, a part of a different part of like re-establishing a narrative that like if you're unemployed it's your fault it's not a societal problem it's your problem you're you're not getting up early enough in the morning you're not trying hard enough you're not working for free enough this is all trying to like trying to row back the kind of victories or, or like progressing in terms of popular consciousness that have happened because of COVID and they're like push it all back again and go back to kind of the neoliberal norm. But isn't it interesting even I mean I'll come back to the bar worker thing in a second but isn't it interesting and this struck me when you both of you were talking about the job rate stuff and the internships and isn't it very sad that we don't have any industry in Ireland that needs a lot more workers in it building houses say for instance maybe you know if most countries, I, I work for the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union. We had huge input into um, apprenticeship schemes in Australia because they recognised they, they actually forecast what industries were going to need apprenticeships, and they created schemes on the back of that. We currently have a housing supply crisis. You'd think that instead of bringing in these schemes, the state would start, you know, 
a really intensive apprenticeship scheme to, 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 to push people into not only, by the way, not only building houses, but ultra retrofitting houses. Exactly. That should be spread out much more massively. But instead, we're going to be paying a, a retail employer to bring in a deli assistant for free and undermine the existing terms and conditions of the workers who are currently there and in the in the, the workplaces across the street. But just even on this, right, the judge, uh, which in the bar worker case, FBD, is really interesting. The judge took a, uh, said, you know, in the past, there was a period of apprenticeship within the bar trade. It was a reasonably long period of apprenticeship. I remember it was about four years to become a fully qualified barman, right? Uh, and, and McGrath was going on about it, the, the judge. Uh, uh, he said the days when you spent and oh, no, McGrath is the solicitor, and he said, the days when you spent a year learning how to pour a pint of Guinness, I think, are gone. And the justice came back and said, there is an art in doing it. And and the bar, and the solicitor said, um, yes, it requires some basic social skills. I mean, talk about undermining people, other other industries and, and all the rest. So look, I know we're running out of time. I know you might want to come back in on that one, but I couldn't have this week's one without um, the international affairs element of it too. Uh, in terms of Soldier F and the whole um, amnesty for British soldiers um, in, in the North uh, for, for during the Troubles and the people who have been murdered as a result. And, and we obviously know the Bloody Sunday stuff, but there's a whole range of them. And the Irish Independent do have a small, well, not a small, they have two big pieces, right? Um, on page 12 and page 13. And the first one is talking to the, um, the family of one of the victims of the Enniskillen bombing. And underneath it is Coveney. And it's, this is an interesting development. That Coveney, Simon Coveney, our minister, says, amnesty not a fait accompli as all five northern parties and Dublin are united. So there has been a little bit of a kickback from the state, which, to be honest, I was getting a bit worried because it was so quiet after the announcement of what was going to happen that I thought Dublin wasn't even going to criticise it or say anything. But I don't know if anyone has any perspectives on this. The perspective that the trademark lads who 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 are involved in, in left block came out with was, um, one of the things that they mentioned was, you know, we know things were bad in terms of the collusion that has gone on in the north, right, between the British state and, and you know, the murders that happened. But it's clearly a lot worse um, when you see them doing these, changing the law in this way. Um, you have to wonder what it is that they're covering up because this is a, a you know, a, this is a, a British government that could bring about some sort of process to end all of this stuff right to get to the bottom of it but they're not they're it, it's that it's, it's that far in the distance distant past sort of that you expect them to do something around it but there's clearly files there that they don't want getting out they don't want to prosecute anyone they're giving ira uh perpetrators of murders and all the rest of it a, 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 a freedom on the back of this stuff just to protect a handful of their soldiers. Maybe not a handful, maybe an awful lot of them, if you know what I mean. But I don't know, has anyone got any perspectives on the soldier F and the amnesty? I mean, one, one thing, I, I saw a British tabloid, I presume it was the Sun, um, but I'm, I, I might be doing the Sun a disservice, which is unlikely, um, which had a headline of something like, justice for our soldiers, you know, with this announcement, which is just like the most horrific kind of 1984 style use of language that like the, the murdering of civilians and then getting away with it and being guaranteed you're going to get away with it is presented as in some way uh, justice. And um, I think I think a problem is I think I think Dave, you put your finger on it in terms of um, obviously the Irish government and all the parties are saying they don't agree with it and they kind of they're under pressure to say they don't agree with it. And but the question is how far are they going to push? Because there's lots of interest that would say okay, an amnesty makes the whole thing 
go away. Even though it means the families, you know, don't get justice, don't get truth. They just sweep the whole thing under the rug. So I, I think what is needed, and I think there are plans in Derry, for example, is like an outpouring from below to put pressure on them and to say, no, no, we really won't uh, accept this um, whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I'll hopefully be up there for that protest because this is this is shocking stuff, to be honest. Like, I, I remember only a few weeks ago, I watched the video of uh, Bernadette McAllisky being interviewed back in 1972 or 73, I think it was, 73 maybe. And she was talking about this, you know, when we break the law, we're prosecuted, we're sent to prison. When they break the law, the government, they change the law. And, that, and that's effectively what they're doing here. Uh, it's a massive cover up on, on, on and in, in 50 or 100 years time, we'll probably get the information and it'll be too far in the distance and everybody who perpetrated the crimes will be gone. And, and that's what it's all about. It's the passage of time. We don't get it in working class communities. Don't get justice uh, without a, a long, long struggle. If you think about even Stardust, Hillsborough um, and Bloody Sunday, they just deny us justice at every um every corner so it's it's deeply depressing but the story hasn't ended um i think well i don't know paul or, or michelle i think you are both finished so we, we'll wrap up um i want to thank our guest again paul uh murphy td for people before profit thank in you dublin southwest for joining us and, and talking about all the big stories of the week um i want to thank my co-host michelle uh, and I, I i'm going to give it a plug again we're part of the left block group um uh, we have our patreon if you want to find out more we really could do with more supporters more people jumping on board and um, we want to be rolling out political education uh, across the country over the next couple of months um but yeah patreon.com forward slash left block and, and follow us on uh, all of the social media platforms and do us a favor give this a share as well get it out there make sure people are aware that we do this critical analysis of not only what the stories are of the week but how it's covered in the papers because there's not many people who are covering how it's being covered <laughs> so thanks again uh, everybody and we'll see you all in the next week